Matthew chapter 5, you'd turn there please, and uh, my mentor minute this week is following Sanctity of Life Sunday last week where Bruce Campbell stood up and shared some things about that, and we saw a video, and uh, a lot of people are still, not just women, uh, husbands, uh, boyfriends that have been involved in an abortion situation, uh, become believers, and they feel like they can't forgive themselves. And uh, you could add other sins and other situations. We are not in the business of forgiving ourselves. Matter of fact, we really can't do that. It requires somebody outside to forgive us. Uh, and so it's just necessary that you go before the Lord if you're in the kingdom and realize that's done, it's settled, it's finished. You put that behind you and you move forward. And I think you'll see some things even in our study today of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that might relate to some of that. So trust will be blessed as we open up his word. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today, and we're going to talk about an upside-down kingdom or upside-down living. Now, the very first week, we, we call this the cost of not following Christ. We talk, so many people talk about the cost of following Christ, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. And, but what's the cost of not following Christ? It's much, much greater much, much greater. And then the week after that, we looked at the two kingdoms. And I said, we have to look at the kingdom of darkness for a while, and then we'll move into the kingdom of light and passing from death unto life. We went through that. It's important to understand there are two kingdoms that are involved. And then last week, we talked about taking the kingdom wherever we go, because the king lives within us. We're part of the kingdom wherever we go. Even if we don't understand it or realize it, we're bringing the kingdom into the marketplace everywhere. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at some of the parables that deal with how the kingdom is growing and how you and I are part of that growth. There's some very strange parables that deal with the growth of the kingdom and seeing things happen might even surprise you as to how much the kingdom is growing even in our own lifetime and things that we can't see. Well, today we're going to look at just a little sweeping view of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never read it before, it takes about 12 to 15 minutes to read. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this particular sermon is the longest one that Jesus has given. And it has a way of probing very, very deeply into the human heart in a way that no psychologist or psychiatrist possibly can. So I'm going to read the opening few words here with the Beatitudes and then we'll dive into the subject matter. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. We'll pray and dive in. Now when he saw the crowds, and the crowds in chapter 4 were all kinds of hurting people, mental illnesses, physical pain, all kinds of problems. He went upon a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we would ask today uh, a special uh, anointing of our eyes, that our eyes would be open 
to understand the deep things of yourself. And so, Father, we pray that you'd reveal some wonderful things out of this, these great truths in kingdom living that we've perhaps never seen before. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Upside-down living. Uh, it is hardwired in all of us to live a certain way according to our fleshly bents and desires, etc. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then gives the Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is all so, so foreign to human thinking. It is so completely different than how any of us naturally think. And though the Beatitudes are interesting to study, and I'm not sure anybody's ever going to fully get them right, uh, it's, they're, they're complex in some respects. Are these, are, are these things you have to do in order to enter the kingdom? And is that a works type of be good to get in? Or are these things that are offered to you now that you're in the kingdom, they, they kind of go back and forth a little bit. You have to do a lot of time and thinking and praying and pouring over it. Either way, you're going to be blessed if you study the Beatitudes. There's much there, and he's talking to people that are in, that are in great pain. What I want to do today is I want to look at what I consider to be the, the entranceway into the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's a particular verse. We looked at it briefly last week, but I want to look at it today because I think this is the door that allows us to really enter into this entire study of what it means to upside-down living. And that verse happens to be verse 20 in this same chapter. Verse 20, we read this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of God. Let me ask you a question. I want you to go back to when you first believed in Christ. You might have been six or ten. It could have been almost anywhere. It could have been at a Billy Graham crusade or a church service or your parents told you, what have you. And you may not remember the exact hour or something, but you kind of remember it was in the summer of such and such or June or whatever. Maybe you remember the prayer or however you entered in. And the question is, maybe you've only known the Lord for, say, a year. Maybe you've known the Lord for 20 years. Here's the question that you want to ask yourself, not as a guilt trip, but from the time that I made a genuine profession of faith to where I am now, what has the growth pattern looked like? All right? That's the question. Have I been stagnant? Have I moved ahead? And if I haven't moved ahead, what has been uh, the stumbling block along the way that has kept me from moving ahead? I think there's an awful lot here in the Sermon on the Mount that helps answer that question, helps us move forward. Because again, we by nature have wrong thinking. We don't think right. Now here's how I think of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a rough way to think of it. I remember years ago, I pictured myself laying down on a board with lots of splinters, lots and lots of splinters in this board. But if I laid down on the board and I was able to move my way in the direction that the splinters laid down, I'd get no splinters. But if I went the other way, I'd get shredded. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It shreds you. Nobody lives up to it by any means. As a matter of fact, some of the great religious leaders of other religions have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is one reason why I don't believe in Jesus because it's a great sermon, but nobody's living it, particularly Christians. I think it was Gandhi or somebody that said, uh, 
I love Jesus, it's his followers I can't stand. And uh, it, it, there, there, there's a truth because that's a wrong way of thinking it. This isn't a bunch of how-tos. This is entering into a world where God transforms your mind at the new birth, illuminates it, and it's a, it's a process, it's a journey of understanding why you and I can't possibly keep this, particularly to try to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it is something that through time and by God's grace, we are granted much of these great truths. And the, 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 the beauty of it is, it goes so deep into the human soul that it reveals how hardwired we are regarding human righteousness. Which is why I think verse 20, just me, is the entrance. It's the entrance place. It's sort of the entrance exam because here are these Pharisees, these people that had memorized huge portions of the Old Testament, and legal scholars, biblical scholars, and Jesus says, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, exceeds theirs, you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. That would be like saying, unless your workout routine exceeds that of a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger, you'll never get in shape. Good luck. You'll never be in shape. It's hopeless. The splinters have entered, all right? Or unless your righteousness exceeds that of Mother Teresa, you'll never enter in. And her righteousness didn't come close to allowing her in. <laughs> He's talking about two things here, as I mentioned last week. First of all, the righteousness that I need to enter in is called the gift of righteousness found in the book of Romans. When I come to Christ, he gives me that gift. But there's a second element to it. This is what we didn't get into last week. The second element to that is, now that I have that righteousness, that righteousness probes the self-righteousness that's within my soul and starts pulling that out of my, of my system. Because the new way of living is birthed and born out of the righteousness that I was given by Christ when I was born again. No longer it's me trying to make this thing happen and so on. So this is a way that Jesus is talking to one group of people by saying, you better be better than the scribes and the Pharisees and all the religious leaders. And they're thinking, wait a minute, who could be better than we are? So you've got, you've got this, this mixture of how people are thinking as they're, as they're looking at this. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult section to read through, but it's beautiful because it's as though in verse 20, God is putting us on an operating table and then cuts us open, gives us a lot of anesthetic anesthesia, and goes inside and starts pulling out all the junk, all the cancerous self-righteousness and there are so many statements through here. We're not going to go through all of them. We're going to pick just some along the way. But the self-righteousness has to be removed in order for the person to move forward in kingdom living. It has to be. And it's a, it's a growth process. Um, when, I, when I read through this, and I've read through it several times, I remember uh, back at a, um, a men's retreat. I don't recall the guy's name that spoke at our last men's retreat. And most people don't remember a message. They might remember one thing out of a message. Unless, of course, it's my message. But you, uh, no. Most of you, you'll remember one thing that I say today. Hopefully, you'll remember that. I took a lot of notes. But here's the one thing this guy said. 
He had been hiding something and putting on a front. He was involved in a high position in an organization, Christian organization. And he would wake up every morning and he asked himself this question. Is this the day that people find out who I really am? Is that a good question or what? Is this the day that somebody's going to find out that I'm not really living the life that I'm presenting? All right? Now, nobody does that. We all have a certain amount of that. We don't have to spill our, all of our problems to everyone. But he had been living a lie for quite some time. I thought it was a great question. And so, kingdom living doesn't have any place for, is this the day they're going to find out? Kingdom living is honest living. It's above reproach living. It's revealing yourself to family and friends and struggles, things that you go through. That's kingdom living. Now, there are other spiritual leaders in the world. <laughs> Jesus wasn't the only one and isn't the only one. As a matter of fact, do unto others you would have them do unto you is found in all major religions. Jesus wasn't new to that, unique with that. But I'm going to show you something about Jesus' teaching that is very, very different than other religions and other religious teachers. Let me read something to you from uh, the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. I think that's a great statement. There's a lot of things that people have learned by just experience in life. I think that's a good statement. Here's one. You can never obtain peace in the outer world until we make peace with ourselves. That's an interesting statement, but how do you make peace with yourself? How does self make peace with self? Most people don't think about that. There has to be some kind of a mediator between the self and the self, you know? And, you know, you've heard me say this a number of times. According to Jesus, we are the problem. Self is the problem. And when the problem tries to solve the problem, that's a problem, all right? And that's why... The Dalai Lama, I'm sure he's a nice guy, is missing it. There's also no connection here at all with eternity. There's no connection here with, with the God of the universe. And of course, it's more of an atheistic type religion. Then he says this, don't let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace. I think that's a pretty good statement. But Jesus says, Jesus makes the statement, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, not as these religions give give I unto you. It's, it's a completely different world. It's totally different. It's upside down living. And so many people are out, you know, in all these areas, you know, not that I'm trying to make fun of, but people trying to find themselves. I've never understood that. Just look in the mirror. There you are. All right, just, I don't, you know, there I am. I'm here. Okay. Or you can ask somebody on the street, am I really here? Yeah, you're there. Okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. Sort of like the hippie back in the 60s that was trying to find himself. He got a haircut, and sure enough, there he was. Um, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> got to get these. Uh, I had it down here. Too. So now that I'm in trouble with everyone, um, but it, it, you know, there is something to be said for all. There, there are so many books of people. They're the biggest sellers, self-help books. Self-help. That's an oxymoron. How does self help self when self is the problem? All right? But most people don't think that way. They don't take the time to think through those things. When Jesus comes along, his sermon is completely flipped. 
from Eastern mysticism and New Age stuff. It's totally different. It's like it's from another world. And it is. It's from another kingdom. And it doesn't operate. People don't think the same way. So the differences between all these different quotes, and here's, here's, uh, uh, here's one. Um, here's one from Buddha. Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. That's a good statement. But what does that mean? What does that mean? It's just clever, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and there's just tons and tons of these statements. And Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus does is Jesus says things that cause you to walk away scratching your head. Jesus messes with you. And if you follow Jesus, he'll continue to mess with you till the day you die. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to scratch your head about an awful lot of things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount that are hard to understand. Here's another difference. Religions and world leaders, and whether they be political or religious, discover things by experience. Experience in life. A penny saved is a penny earned. Early to bed, early to rise, make, rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. All right? uh, those are things we just learn. All right? There's nothing wrong with that. There's wisdom in that. But Jesus isn't learning through experience. Now, I know there's a passage that talks about how he learned through suffering and so on. But that's not the dimension we're talking about here. Jesus didn't need to learn through the experiences of life. Jesus is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of this world. He is the, 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 the life. We've been crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, we live yet not, but Christ lives in me. These are all statements that cause all of us to go, what? What does that mean? And you don't just walk away. You walk away puzzled in some respects. Christ who is our life. Uh, over and over again, we read things that, that, that bring a different definition as to how we even see life. It's upside down living. And you'll notice that Jesus' statements are attached to eternity. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, he doesn't say, you'll miss out on having a good life. He'll say, you'll miss out on heaven. You'll miss out on, on the kingdom. All the statements, all woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps bringing eternity into the equation. C.S. Lewis said, that which is not eternal is eternally out of date. That is a great tagline. I didn't think of it. <laughs> all right? That which is not eternal is eternally out of date. Find your inner self. Find your inner being. It's eternally out of date. It's not connected with eternity. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary in the 50s, said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That'll make you think for a while. That'll make you think for a long time. And those kind of statements are left in people's minds and they, 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 they stir it up. Upside down living also introduces us to a different set of weapons that we deal with in this world. In 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, they're not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds and we normally think of those things as prayer, uh, faith, those are certainly weapons, but there's a lot of other weapons that are out there that I never would have thought of in a, in a thousand years. And a friend of mine that some of you know, John Bishop, John was a, you can't say ex-Marine because 
Marines don't like to be called ex-Marines. He's a, he's a retired Marine. He fought in Vietnam. He's a good friend of mine at the academy. And John really, uh, if I had to say he had sort of a specialty, it's he loves to study spiritual warfare from looking at it through the lens of human warfare. And he just sort of flips it. He looks at it through that, that lens. And he came up with this statement. He, maybe he got the definition somewhere. We were having, we were having uh, breakfast or lunch one day, and, and he, he made this statement. He said, a weapon is anything you can use that destroys your enemy's ability to wage war against you. Let me say that again. A weapon is anything you can use that destroys your enemy's ability to wage war against you. And then he gives some of the strangest weapons that I've ever heard of. I would have thought faith, the word, you know, something, apologetics. Here's what he says. Forgiveness is a weapon. When we forgive, we destroy Satan's ability to wage war against us through anger, bitterness, alienation, revenge, get even, tit for tat, settle the score, etc. That's insightful. That is very insightful. That's a weapon. Generosity. When we are generous, we destroy Satan's ability to wage war against us through the deceitfulness of riches and the love of money and hoarding and everything else. The things that destroy us. He says, when you're generous, that's a weapon. It's a weapon against the kingdom of darkness. And that's how the, that's how the kingdom grows. It grows very differently than we would normally think. A clear conscience. When we maintain a clear conscience, we destroy the Satan's ability to wage war against us through guilt, shame, embarrassment, humiliation, etc. I think that's brilliant. I think he really nailed it. And I think that, that when you enter in to the kingdom and you begin to see these, these ways of, of, of seeing things, they're, they're so very, very different than we would normally look at them. So the Sermon on the Mount, I'm now going to look at some of, some of what I would call some of the weapons. Some of the things that wouldn't come to us naturally. And we'll look at some, some we will not have time to dive into, they're too involved, but for the sake of, of time, let's take a look. Look, if you would, at verse 12 of chapter um, 5. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. There it is. There's the connection to heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying, listen to what he says, rejoice. That is not normal thinking, to rejoice in, 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 in these types of trials and difficulties. And even the way the nation's headed, we need to take that into, into heart. Rejoice. Look at verses um, 27 and following. 27, it says this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he talks about cutting out your eye and your hand and so on. Now, now, pause for a moment. Because just prior to that, he says, you have heard it been said that you're not supposed to, to murder, but I say unto you, if you've ever been angry, you've, you've pretty much done it. Now, here you are. You're a Pharisee. You're a teacher of the law. You're living the life. You give tithes of all that you possess. You're in the synagogue every week. You're, you're, you are living the life. Nobody's questioning that you're sacrificial and you're giving and you're, you're living this very pure life outwardly. And it's all produced out of a self-righteous view that look at me, I'm good, I'm not like other men are, as it tells us in Luke in the parable there. And so 
This is striking to no matter who's in the crowd or what's going on here. Because he says, we need to go a little bit deeper. Here, let me cut a little deeper. On the outside, it looks good. Let me, let's go down and let's open up the rib cage here and take a real look at what's really going on. Have you ever wished somebody were dead? Or you had that kind of hate in your heart? You're guilty. Have you ever lusted? You're guilty. So now, now everybody's feeling the splinters. Because we're, we're now being dragged sort of against the grain. And this is not like anybody thinks. Nobody thinks like this. And so Jesus introduces this, which is something that's so totally foreign. Look at verses 43 and following. Here's what he says, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible doesn't tell you to hate your enemy. It does say to love in the Old Testament. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can't do that. Love my enemy. I cannot do that. My heart naturally wants to hate somebody that is in opposition to my way of thinking or my life or is a threat to my moral values, whatever. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. That is a weapon. When you love somebody that is giving you a difficult time, that becomes a weapon because it disarms them and they don't know what to do with the weapons they've been using. Because your weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. So the Sermon on the Mount has many very, very unique weapons. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Here's the eternal attachment again. He's saying, uh, if you're going to give money, you don't need to let everybody know how much you gave. Then he goes on and he talks about prayer. He says, there are some of you in, chapter, in verse 5, stand in the streets and make sure everybody sees how much you're, you're, how you're praying. Or a little bit down, verse 16, you disfigure yourself to make sure everybody knows that you've been fasting. In other words, people could see the religious leaders and others mimicking, mimicking righteousness. But their righteousness was self-righteousness which comes out of the nature of the human heart. It's just there. We're born with it. We want the praise of men. We like all that. And Jesus comes along and says, well, if you have kingdom living, and if you've got a kingdom heart, it'll be very different. You won't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. You just won't care. It won't be there. It'll be long, long gone. Now, the big one. I'll spend a few minutes on this one. Chapter 7. Listen to this. Do not judge... Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's a big one. That is a really, really big one. Because Jesus is now messing with you. He's messing with you. Because everybody's got an opinion about something in life. And usually when somebody, a, a well-known figure in politics or sports or Hollywood or whatever, gets caught doing something, 
stealing, you know, whatever. And when they hear that, that, that the society is kind of coming after them, they will often, whether they believe in God or not, they'll quote this verse. Only, they don't really quote it. They'll say, Jesus said, judge not. Or if they feel like Christians are judging their moral values because of the views that we have on various issues, they'll say, you don't even believe what Jesus said. Jesus said, judge not. To which I want to say, where does it say that in the Bible? I've never seen that verse in my life. It's right here. Judge not. Is there a period there? Judge not or you too will be judged. You see, there, there's more to it. And then he explains it. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with judging. John chapter 7 says make sure you judge righteously. He just wants to make sure that when you are judging, that you have cleared all the, the garbage in your own eye, your own mind, as to how you're passing judgment. Do you have the facts? Do you know what the issues are? And so on. And do you have anything in your own life in that particular area that has not been resolved? And so he says, first, take the log out of your eye, meaning you got some serious issues, all right? You take that out, you'll be able to see real clearly the speck that's in the other person's eye. Only that speck in their eye is the log as they're seeing it, and they need to get that cleared out to see the dust in your eye. Suppose the world lived like that. Just suppose the world lived like that. I told the earlier church, I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to give two illustrations. I'm going to get in trouble, it's okay. <clears throat> First we'll use what's going on right now. You got the Democrats and Republicans. Independents, Libertarians, whatever. You got, but we know what's going on. The president's been impeached, now going before the Senate. And everybody's saying, the Constitution clearly says this. The other side goes, the Constitution clearly says this. And those of us that aren't constitutional scholars are going, I have no idea what it says. <laughs> and everybody's fighting, we got all the proof of this. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's a joint session, and Jesus shows up. And they go, Jesus is here. Jesus. Please tell everyone he's guilty. Please tell everyone he's not guilty. Jesus, you're the sovereign God of the universe, if they believe that. You're the sovereign God of the universe. Tell us. Can you imagine Jesus saying, okay, he's guilty, or he's not guilty? He would never say that. Never. He'd mess with you. He'd tell a story. And everybody would walk out going, what? What? And they'd probably stop fighting. He might even say, hey, have you got the, have you got the log? There's nothing going on behind either of the chambers where you guys are lying and deceiving. None of that. Couldn't be any bias, could there? No, we wouldn't have any of that. There's no way. He might even say, okay, I'll give you an opinion. Oh, fools and slow of heart to have believed all the scriptures say about me. And then he might even go in and start talking out of the Old Testament, pointing to the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know what he would say, but I guarantee you he wouldn't give you an answer. No way. We have, and we have, we have something similar coming up this next week. And it's, it's, very, it's very similar to this because we've all seen it. This, this way you can actually see it. You can really see it. It's palpable. It's, it's tactile. It's there. Next week, 
the Kansas City Chiefs <laughs> and the 49ers are going to play in the Super Bowl. All right? I don't know if this is going to happen, but let's say it's 21-21 and there's a second left in the game and the Chiefs are getting ready to go into the end zone and score. And there's one second left. Mahomes drops back. He fires a rifle bullet pass to his tight end. The guy grabs it, and he's starting to go out of bounds, and he's kind of got the ball, but sort of doesn't, and both feet are kind of in, but sort of not. And all of a sudden, the referee goes like this, touchdown, and the place, 50,000 people go, and 50,000 say, no, he didn't have possession. And then the ruling comes from New York. We're going to take a look at this. We're going to take a look at this. And everybody's looking at the same screen in high def with 8,000 different angles, all right? And one side is saying, he clearly has possession. Both feet are clearly in. And the other side is saying, no way! No, he's dragging his foot. How can that be? They're both looking at the same bit of evidence. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes out onto the field. I didn't know it would be this funny. I'm just telling you. I, I just, Jesus comes out and, they go, and the head ref goes, Jesus is here. Who won? Who? Did he or didn't he? You know all things. Well, let me remind you of a story of a man that came up to me and said, would you please convince my brother to divide the inheritance? Would you please... I, you, do you, you all know that story about a man coming out and saying, tell my brother to divide the inheritance? You think Jesus didn't know whether he should or shouldn't? Did he answer the question? No. No way. He messed with them. And he said, man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that he has. What? What? And then he tells his story and walks off. And everybody's scratching their heads. Kingdom living doesn't always give super clear answers to everything. What it does is it brings the heart of love and kindness and receptivity and openness and teachability and humility into a world that knows nothing about that. And you've heard me say this before. Jesus never answers questions. He only answers hearts. He never answers questions. He wants to know what your heart is. And if your heart is right, the roots of this sermon will take deep root into your soul. And transformation will start to happen over a period of time. And I'm not here to say who's going to win the game next week or the Democrats, but that isn't even the issue. The issue is, are we people of the kingdom that know how to bring weapons into the arenas that calms people down and allows people to see what real living looks like. That's the message. Whether you fully understand everything Jesus said or not, it'll always mess with you to some degree. And going back to the verse that I said is sort of the entrance into all this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you in no way will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a lot of people here today. Have you thought enough about what that even means? That your righteousness 
has to be better than the really good people, the great people, the religious leaders of today. It has to be infinitely better. Because your righteousness and my righteousness are tainted. The Bible says they're like filthy rags. They're dirty. They don't, have a, uh, they don't have a pure motive behind them. But Jesus offers us his righteousness. And when you believe in him, when you trust in him, when you put your faith in him, he gives you that righteousness. You then enter into the kingdom. And now you have the privilege of living out with the weapons of the warfare that are given that are not carnal, but mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds and the ways people see things. So if you've never trusted him, greatest news in the entire world is that you're never going to find total peace. You're never going to be able to find the inner person and all that until Jesus Christ enters and he becomes your life. And as I said weeks past, all of this is either a cliche or a reality. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we think of people that have maybe are here today that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day they would. I pray that today would be the day they would realize that they have nothing to offer you other than self-righteousness, which is nothing. And that today would be the day they would call upon you that they could receive your righteousness and enter into the kingdom. And Lord, let us learn what this means, this kingdom living, which is so beyond the scope of our natural human way of thinking. So Father, dismiss us now with your grace. Allow us to bless you with this final number, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.